Lord, you truly are great and awesome. And Lord, you truly are worthy of all of our praise. Lord, our praise and our worship cannot be just gathering together and singing. Lord, it needs to be our lives. It needs to be lived out in our day-to-day uh, walk, in our working, in our, in our interacting with the world around us so that they can see how great you are in us. Lord, I, I do pray that that would be the case, that our, our faith and our worship and our praise of you would be an outpouring in the daily lives that we live. Now, Lord, as we focus again on your word and we study through the life of Abraham, a man of, of great faith, Lord, we pray that our faith is strengthened as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good evening. Why don't you, before you sit down, shake hands with somebody around you, say hi. Thanks, guys. All right. I would encourage you all to continue this fellowship and talking with each other after the service over a cup of hot chocolate because there is uh, the Spanish ministry is, uh, is selling some hot chocolate afterwards for a donation of any amount, and it goes towards their ministry and the work that they're doing. So, hot chocolate afterwards. Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis 14. Continue our look at the life of Abraham. It's recorded for us in the book of beginnings, Genesis and uh, where we left off last week, we don't know the time frame that elapses between the end of 13 and the beginning of chapter 14. Certainly, uh, a length of time has elapsed, however. In Genesis chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, it says, And it came about in the days of, and I'm going to apologize right now for totally misspelling and butchering all these names. In the days of... Amraphel, king of Shinar, which by the way, Shinar, as we talked about a few weeks ago, is Babylon, that area of Babylon. Arioch, king of Elisar, Shed or Loamar, and he appears a lot, so we'll call him Chad from now on. <laughs> king of Elam, that is Persia, and he, as we're going to see, is kind of the leader of this gang. Title, king of Goim that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Abma, and Shemabur, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these came as allies to the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chad, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. We see here a group of four kings led by this gentleman, the king of Elam, and apparently 12 years or so prior, they had come down through and made an agreement with these other five kings and many of the other er the groups that were down there, the villages, the settlements that were down there, they made an agreement with them that we won't kill you as long as you pay tribute to us. 
And for 12 years, they went along with this whole thing. But it tells us in verse 4 that on the 13th year, they rebelled. So after that, we pick up in verse 5. In the 14th year, Chad and the kings that were with him, and we'll, we talked all through them already. So they came down, and they came, as, they came through, and they went, started out going to the areas that are around the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other ones, and they started taking care of all of these other places. And again, it's not told us, to us why, but I can, we can assume why, so that the kings of Sodom and those that were rebelling wouldn't go out and gather more troops to come and attack them. They come down from the south, they defeat a whole bunch of the... Uh, the towns and tribes and everything around them, and now they're coming up back here. And we pick up at verse 7, it says, Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, which is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites, who lived in Hazan Tamar. And the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out, and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Siddim against Chad, the king of Elam, and Tidal, the king of Goim, and Arphael, the king of Shinar, and Arioch, the king of Elisar. Four kings against five. So kings of Sodom, king of Gomorrah, three other guys, they're going to come out and they're going to do battle against these four that have been wreaking havoc in the area around them. Pick it up again in verse 10. It says, Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, or some of your translations might say slime pits. We don't know exactly what the substance was in the pit, but it it was slimy, it was sticky, it was nasty, gooey. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. Kind of fitting that kings of Sodom and Gomorrah would end up in slime pits. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed. For he was living in Sodom. So the four, four kings show their muscle, flex their strength. The five kings freak out, panic, take off running for the hills. They move in and they take all of the possessions. They take all of the people, slaves, captives, all of the things with them as their bounty and start heading out. And they take Lot and his family and all of his possessions with them. Because as we see at the end of verse 12, he was living in Sodom. If you'll remember last week when he lifted up his eyes to the good and fertile land, he moved towards Sodom. And it says he pitched his tents towards Sodom. Hadn't moved in yet, but was living around. And we talked about that, how it's dangerous to even play around, dance around the fire. And here we see he was lured completely in. He was actually living in the town at that time. God allows us to make decisions. God allows us the freedom to choose. Good decisions and bad ones. God clearly warns us as followers of him. He speaks to us. We see in, in the, the book of Hebrews, Lot is called a man of righteousness. I'm sorry, Second Peter is called a man of righteousness. He, God was speaking to Lot. It tells us in Second Peter chapter 2 that Lot was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. It bothered him to be around these people. It says it oppresses him. It goes on to say, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. He was in torment living with these people, but he chose to live with them anyway. God was warning him, 
speaking to him, the Holy Spirit not letting him get comfortable. And isn't that the case with us as Christians? When, when we start stepping out of line and getting into things that we shouldn't be involved in or, or not doing things that God has clearly called us to do, the Holy Spirit speaking to our hearts, that's not what I called you to do. That's not what you should be doing. That is sin. Stay away. The Holy Spirit speaking to our hearts. Proverbs 3, verse 11 and 12 says, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. The Lord will discipline us. The Lord will speak directly to us. And again, make it very uncomfortable for us to be involved in things that we shouldn't. But again, he will not prevent us from doing that. He gave Lot, again, the continued choice to go ahead. And if we don't listen to his rebukes, if we don't listen to the correction that comes our way, he will do further things to get our attention. And here we see that happening to Lot. And it's usually painful when those things happen. Now, the world makes a lot of promises to us. The world was obviously very very alluring to Lot. Come on, Come on, move into the town with us. Come on, be a part of us. Partake with us. We'll, we'll share together. We'll be together. Everything will be good. Everything will be fancy. The, the Lord, world makes a whole lot of promises. They love to be our friends until the going gets tough, until things get difficult, until the world tips upside down. And we see here, the kings took off. Yeah, come on, bring all your goods. Bring all your stuff. Enjoy it. Have, have great fellowship with us. But things get tough, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah take off. Well, verse 13 says, then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Anar. And these were allies with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he let out, led out his trained men, born in his house, 318 and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Verse 15, he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. We see here that there was obviously devastation going on, a lot of carnage people being taken away, but there were some people that escaped, that got away. And one of them, a fugitive, it calls him, he got away and ran to where Abram was. And we're told here that Abram was living amongst three other clans that were in the area. And if you'll notice, the first one, it says, living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite. Mamre, this man, was an Amorite. And we see back in verse 7, that the Amorites were some of those that were conquered by these people. He escaped, got up there, going to tell his relatives, Abram overhears what's going on. Abram, the Hebrew, that word Hebrew means outsider. It means one from beyond. It means somebody that, that does, that's not part of everybody else. He's an outsider. We, as Christians... Many of you probably have the shirts, the bumper stickers, not of this world. As Christians, we are no longer of this world. We are outsiders. But that doesn't mean that we're hard-hearted or that we're indifferent towards what's going on around us. Abram wasn't. He was separate, but he wasn't isolated. He was independent of them, but he wasn't indifferent towards the, the plight, the things that were going on around him. 
Verse 13 even calls them that he was allies with them, that they worked together, that they, that they obviously shared some things together. Now, 2 Corinthians 6.14 tells us, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? We need to understand what this verse is saying. It means that we are to never, ever, under any circumstances, compromise who we are in Christ. We are to never to become partakers or participants in the darkness, in the sin, in the world around us. But we must coexist with the people around us. We must cooperate with people around us and intermingle with the world around us. If we don't, how can we be salt and light in this dark world? We have to go to work with people who aren't Christians. We have to live in neighborhoods with people who aren't Christians because we are called to a, 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 the, the role of shining light in this dark world. We see this throughout the Old Testament, story after story. Joseph Joseph, taken to Egypt, was very, it became second in command to Pharaoh. We see Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer to the king, used in a mighty way by God. Daniel. Daniel was, was very high up in a, in a very pagan government, but never once compromised his position with the Lord. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We have to be out amongst the world in order for that to happen. As we sang and we just prayed before we started, let that be our life. Let our life be that witness when we are around unbelievers. And Abram's witness was so effective that as we're going to see here, the rest of them followed his lead. He wasn't following their lead. He took the lead. We see it outlined here. He took his men and they, they went along with him. We're going to read that in a little bit, that these men went along with Abram. They followed along with him. Now, before we get on moving past to the, the fight and what he did there, one thing I want you to notice is Abram, when he heard the news of what happened to Lot, he didn't say, well, it serves him right. He was the one who chose that good land over there, and he did it He did it so that he'd get the best, and he tried to stick it to me. So it serves him right. I'm going to let him go wallow in it for a while. I'm going to go let him sit in that dark dungeon wherever he is for a while, and then maybe I'll think about it. No, he didn't. He didn't. It tells us that he led out his well-prepared fighting force to go and rescue his nephew, Lot. Now, one thing that we see in this is that he did this with nothing to gain. Nothing to gain. He strictly went out because his nephew needed him. His brother needed his help. And he went out and he answered the call. We see Abram's army here, 318 well-trained men. These 318 men went to fight these four kings who had been terrorizing the whole area around them had caused these other kings, as we talked about, to flee and run to the hills. Yet he went out and pursued them. And we see in this, as we fight our spiritual battles, some great things that we can learn from Abram and his fighting force. First of all, they were prepared. They were ready. We, I, I look at that, and when I think about it, when I'm first going through this this morning as I was thinking through this, Remember, we talked about the fact that, that 
God promised that he would take care of, that he would protect Abram. He had that promise to live with. He was obviously living in peace. The, the kings that came down and were terrorizing the area left Abram alone. But yet he was still prepared. He didn't just sit back and, and, and kind of that whole let go and let God kind of thing go. No, he was prepared. He was prepared. And we as believers in our spiritual battles that we face must always be prepared. Even when things are going well, even when things are going smoothly, especially then. We can't wait until there's a disaster or something going on and then start figuring it out. We always need to be prepared, and we see that with his men. It didn't take him six, eight, 12 months to gather the guys together and then train them. They were ready to go right away. We also see that this group of men that set out, they believed in their leader, and we need to believe in our leader. We need to look to him and expect victory. I got to think that these 318 men, they followed Abram expecting victory, not only because of Abram, but because the God of Abram. We need to trust the Lord and follow his orders in the spiritual battles that we face. We see that principle exercised throughout the Old Testament. God works in mysterious ways. God wins victories and battles in ways that we would never come up with. And I like that. Because it proves that he is completely in control. If they were things that I could come up with on my own, I would start getting pretty cocky thinking, why do I need God? Joshua, when the, when they, they, Jericho, who'd have thunk that? Going around, going around, the walls come falling down. Gideon, nope, you got way too many guys, Gideon. There's 135,000 of them, we're going to whittle your team down to 300. But then God gets all the glory. God gets all the glory. We need to understand this equation very simply. God plus anything equals victory. It's a majority. God plus anything is a majority. If God is for me, who could be against me? Any weapon formed against me can't possibly prosper if God is with me. We need to believe in our leader. Notice also that it says that the, the men that were, that were fighting with Abram were born in his house. Born in his house. It all starts there. We need to be born again in order to overcome the world. 1 John 5, 4 tells us, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith. Born of his house. They were armed they were equipped. They had the weapons that they needed. And we as Christians, we're fighting a spiritual battle. And we see in Ephesians chapter 6, we have all the spiritual armor that we need. You can turn there if you like, or just, John, you probably know, but starting chapter 6, verse 10 of Ephesians, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in that evil day, having done everything to stand firm. And then here's our list of equipment. Here's the list of our armor. Verse 14, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. 
In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Putting on the full armor of God. And one of the things that I've said before and I I love, and I got an email today reminding me of this. Notice in this list, there is not one single piece of armor protecting your back. Why is that? Because the battle's before us, and we don't retreat in this battle. All of the armor is for before, on, in the front of us. But each piece, I love this, verse 18, following this list, it says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert, with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. We put each, each piece of this armor on with prayer every day. We can't go out and face the battles, the spiritual battles that we're going to face without being fully armored up and fully prayed up. So we need need to be armed, but we also need to be trained. Armor is great, but if you don't know how to use it, it's very ineffective. Many, Many of the nations that hate us have nuclear technology. They just can't use it. Praise God. It's important that not only do we have the armor, but we know how to use it, that we're trained. And that's why it blesses me to see you guys coming out on a Wednesday night to be back in the Word of God again, to get together in small groups and sharing with one another Bible studies. I was at the Monday morning men's Bible study this week, totally blessed to be around a group of guys that are studying God's Word, that are sharing life together, that are praying together. Guys, get plugged into a men's study. Women, women's study. There's group studies that meet throughout the week. This is so important, our training. We pray together. We we recognize the enemy by studying God's word and understanding his schemes. We learn how to follow orders, train. And lastly, as we see, it doesn't talk anything individually about any of the members. 318 went, and they conquered, and they came back. They were united. They had a single focus a single, a single purpose. A.W. Tozer wrote in The Pursuit of God, he used this illustration that I, I read a couple of weeks ago, and it's just stuck with me. How do you become united? Far too often we think of unity as, okay, I got to get together with Brian, and I got to get together with Scott, and I got to get together with Don, and we need to unite ourselves. Do you know that if you take 100 pianos, and you tune them all to the same fork, all 100 pianos will be tuned together. And far too often, we try to tune ourselves with each other when each one of us needs to be tuned to Jesus. And then we'll all be united because we'll all be tuned to that same fork. Some incredible things we see in just this little bit about the spiritual battles that we face every day. Well, he goes on, verse 17 here. Then after his return from the defeat of Chad and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shiva. All of a sudden, the victory's God. The slime guy gets out of the slime pits coming out. Hey, good to see you. Verse 18, And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. Verse 19, He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed... Be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He, being Abram, 
gave Melchizedek a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong from anything that is yours, for fear that you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Enar, Eshcol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. Sometimes we face our greatest dangers after winning a major battle. Abram takes these 318 men, defeats these armies, takes everything back, brings it all back, and here he's faced with this choice, this decision. Elijah, after the incredible victory on Mount Carmel, defeating all of the the prophets of Baal and this incredible show of God's power flowing through him. This amazing man said, it won't rain again, and it's rain, and the whole thing. Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. He goes running away, scared like crazy. Incredible victory. Some little thing comes his way, takes off. And we need to understand that we can never let our guard down, ever. Almost especially after a major victory. And I say that because so often we can have a a huge victory over temptation in our life. And then something at work that you've been drawn into in the past and you were able to defeat it and you're all excited and you get home and you bark at your kids or you... Have a, have, a, have a fight with your spouse because you've let your guard down. You had a big victory, and then all of a sudden, boom. 19th century Scottish pastor Andrew Bonner said this, let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. Always on the alert. Two kings came out to meet Abram as he came back. Melchizedek is one of them that's spoken of here. His name means king of righteousness. He is the king of Salem. Salem being peace. That's the meaning of peace. Now, this Melchizedek is a very mysterious character in the Bible. We only see him mentioned for, for three verses here. Three verses. That's all that we're told of him. And we're told very little of him. There are lots of theories as to who Melchizedek was or is. And Some of them are pretty bizarre. But the two that make the most sense or line up scripturally are that he was a man, a flesh and blood man, who has kept a mystery because who he was identity-wise as a human being is unimportant. The fact that he was a type or a picture of Jesus Christ is what is important. The other school of thought, and it's very evenly divided as you look at theologians and people that talk through this, is that this was actually a Christophany, a theophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in coming down and meeting with Abram. Regardless of, of what that works out to be, and as we're going through Hebrews on, on the weekends, when we get to chapter 7, we're going to look at more detail into this, but it tells us that he's a priest a priest of the Most High God. And it tells us that he blesses Abram and he glorifies God. He he blesses Abram and it says, Blessed be Abram, the God of the Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, the Most High God. 
Now we see here that in reaction to Melchizedek, Abram does something very, very unique, very, the first time it's mentioned in Scripture. It says that he gives him a tenth of all, a tithe. The first time tithing is mentioned in the Bible. And then a couple of things again to notice here real quickly, that this mention of tithing is before Moses. It's before the law is given. Tithing is not a response to a law that is given. Tithing is an act of worship. Tithing is a way of worshiping God. We see that here, that it's in a, and when we get into, again, Hebrews 7, we'll look at it into a little bit more detail, but it's an act of worship. It's giving to God. Verse 19, again, it says, Blessed be the God of Abraham, Melchizedek said that, possessor of heaven and earth. God possesses it all. It's all his anyway. Abram understood this. And we're going to see this more and more unfold in Abram's life. But God, Abram understood everything he had was on temporary loan from God because God possesses everything. So for him to do this was nothing more than just an act of worship. This was, this was just natural for him to do. Notice also that he did this strictly out of devotion. This wasn't done as a bribe. He had already won the battle. He wasn't saying, all right, Lord, I'll give you 10% if you help me win. He'd already won. I'll give you, Lord, I'll give you 10% knowing that you're going to give me back 25% of what I give. That's not how it works. It's, it's, it's God's anyway. We give it to him and we trust in him. Well, he was also met by Bera, king of Sodom. Notice what he says, and again, as Melchizedek is a picture of Jesus, we can see here Bera, the king of Sodom, almost being a picture of Satan. He's saying, you know what? Go ahead and take all the stuff. Just give me the people. Take all of the goods. You, can, you take them. You enjoy them. You, you have that. I just, want the, I just want the people. Now, did Abram have a right to the stuff? Sure he did. The king of Sodom, again, went running off scared into the hills. Abram went and got it all and brought it all back. He had a right to it. And he could have easily said, you know, I deserve at least some of it. But he didn't. Just because it seems right in the world's eyes does not mean that it's right in God's eyes. And Abram knew that. Abram knew that that would be tainted. He even talks about this. He says, I would, there is no way that I would take anything from you because then you could say, you helped make me. And I rely on only God, the most high God. It says that he was he, not even a shoelace. I'm not even going to compromise a little bit. And I think the illustration there is kind of clever, although I don't know that that's intended, but not even a shoelace because even those little things can trip us up. Just a little compromise. Just a little bit. Opening the door just a crack. Abram said, I, I won't compromise in even the least bit. He was far more interested in the blessings of God than the bribery of the world. But notice that he didn't require that of anyone else. He set the example. But he said at the end of the verse, he says, I, the share to the men who went with me, you know, Anar, Eshcol, Mamre, that's up to them. They can take their share. He's not going to force that on them. He set the example. I'm sure hoping that he was at least Lot would follow along with him. But we're going to see that Lot doesn't. 
Lot goes right back to Sodom. You, the mercy, the blessings of God didn't bring repentance in Lot. He saw this incredible, beautiful action of, the, of God on his behalf, yet he said, you know what? Thanks, but I'm going back to where I came from. And we're going to see how that is a disastrous decision in a few more chapters. Well, chapter 15, verse 1, it says, After these things, after what we just discussed, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Do not fear. Again, the first time this statement is made in the Bible, and it won't be the last. It's a command that's given over and over and over throughout Scripture. Why does God continually say, do not fear? Well, because <laughs> he knows us. And he knows that we have a propensity to fear, to worry. How do we defeat fear? Well, the main way to do that is to stop looking for the blessings and look for the blesser. What do I mean by that? Look for less from him and look for more of him. We see the first of the I am statements in the Bible. It says, I am a shield to you. I am your great reward. Not I will give you a shield. Not I will provide a reward for you. God says to Abram, I am your shield. I am your reward. When Moses asked God's name in Exodus chapter 3, God said, my name is I am. I am that I am. Jesus said many I am statements. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. In the book of Revelation, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. To tie it all up, Jesus simply is everything that we need. Everything that we need. Not, I will give you everything you need. I am everything you need, Jesus says to us. So how do we do this? By keeping our eyes on him. By keeping our, our, our focus on him. When we focus our gaze on him, we lose sight of ourselves and everything around us if we keep our focus on him. In Mark chapter 4, we, we see a, a story that Jesus, that Jesus says to his disciples, why are you afraid? Well, if we back up just a little bit, we find out how they got into this situation. Jesus says, why are you afraid to his disciples standing in a boat in a perfectly calm sea? But it wasn't like that a few moments before. You see what happens, Jesus gets in the boat, climbs up to the front, and he said, let's go to the other side, head that way, guys, I'm going to take a nap. So you guys, we're going to go to the other side. Well, while they're on their way across, a big storm comes up. Where did they get the fear from? Well, it began because some of the guys in the boat were fishermen. Peter, his brother, 
John. They were, they, were, they were fishermen. They were used to some storms. So they started looking at themselves thinking, I'm sure, they thinking, you know what? We can handle this. I know how to handle this. Well, as it started getting a little rockier and a little more, they started to get afraid. Why didn't the other guys go and wake Jesus up? The guys that weren't. Matthew, he was a tax collector. I got to imagine he didn't have sea legs. Why didn't he go wake him up? Well, he probably said, well, I don't want to bother Jesus. Peter's in the boat. He's a fit. I'll look at Peter. I'll look to Peter and I'll follow, I'll follow Peter's lead. Well, when Peter started panicking and freaking out, then Matthew probably started panicking and freaking out, and they all started going nuts. And they're all upset and all afraid and full of fear. They finally wake Jesus up, and he gets up and he calms the storm. And he says, why are you afraid? I got to imagine that one of the questions was, didn't I say we're going to go to the other side? And if Jesus said, we're going to the other side, we're going to the other side. But when they took their focus off of Jesus and what he said and the promise that he made that we're going to get there and they started looking at themselves, Peter, or looking at Peter and saying, well, I'll, I'll follow him. I'll keep my focus there. That's where the fear came in. A.W. Tozer in that same book I referred to said this, faith is the gaze of a soul upon a saving God. That's faith. Our soul looking at a saving God and trusting completely in, in him, totally and completely in him. And again, it's not a one-time, you know, look, one and done kind of thing. It's a continual gaze. When we do that, again, our focus is on him. We're looking at him. We're not looking at ourselves. We're not looking at each other. We're not looking at the storm around us. We're looking at him. And there's no fear there. God's I am is the perfect fix for our I am not. He is everything that we need. Well, Jesus, again, the Lord speaking here to Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Verse 2, Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, since you have given me no, no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now tradition at this time said if you die without an heir, your inheritance goes to your highest ranking servant. So Abram was saying, well, that's what's going to happen here. I don't have any kids, so it's going to obviously go to Eleazar. God again here promises that the nation would come directly from him. Took him outside, showed him the stars, says if you can count the stars, you'll be able to count how many descendants you're going to have. And it says that Abram believed the Lord. And it says in verse 6, that it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Here we have the first redneck term in the word. No, God didn't say, yeah, I reckon that to you. That's not what he said. <laughs> that word reckon means to impute, to, to credit to one's account. Righteousness was credited to Abram's account because he believed God's word. 
It's quoted three times in the New Testament that when he believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness, imputed to him. It's recorded three times in the New Testament to explain how the same thing happens when we place our faith in God, when we place our faith in the finished work of Christ that is credited to us as righteousness. The Hebrew word translated here as righteousness literally means rightly clothed. Rightly clothed. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. When we place our trust in Jesus Christ, we are clothed in his righteousness. When God looks at us because of our faith in Jesus, he sees his son. He sees righteousness. We talked about that on Sunday. That's how we need to see ourselves because that's how God sees us. I like this. Righteousness. This was the defi- or a little statement that I got today. Righteousness. God thought it. Jesus brought it. The Spirit taught it. Satan fought it. But we got it. <laughs> We're robed in his righteousness. Well, verse 7 And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all of these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. I love the fact that this is recorded after verse 6 because we just see this incredible statement. He believed the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, but here we say, Lord, how am I going to know? How am I going to know this? Again, I believe, but help my unbelief. And God honors even weak faith when it's faith in him. He's so patient with Abram. He doesn't say, Are you serious? He's so patient with Abram. And he's so patient with us. It's good to share our concerns with God, even our unbelief. Even to go to him and say, Lord, I'm really struggling with trusting you in this right now. I'm really having a difficult time with this. He wants to hear that. By the way, he knows already. We're not kidding him. We're not fooling him by putting on this front that we are totally in on it. He's he's not deaf. He's not blind. And he's not unconcerned with our plight, with our struggle in faith. He wants to get us past that. He wants to get us through it. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7 says, Therefore, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. Admit that you are struggling with this. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. God didn't rebuke Abram. He gave him the assurance that he needed. And he'll do the same for you. He'll do the same for me in those times when I go honestly before him and say, I'm struggling with this, Lord. Help me. He says, gladly. Gladly. Did a made a contract here. It's much more graphic than today's contracts, but it also meant a lot more. 
Unfortunately, today, a handshake or even our signatures on things is meaningless. Contracts today are broken all the time. Let it not be that way about us, though, as Christians. Our yes be yes and our no be no. But we see here that this was the way a contract was done at those times. They would divide these animals and they would put it so that the, there was a ravine between the two and the blood of the animals would go down in the ravine almost making like a river of blood. Then they would walk through it in the blood and shake hands in the middle. That was signifying the deal, basically saying, if I break my end of the contract, let this happen to me. So Abram does this, sets it all up, and while he's waiting on God, again, always be ready. Don't be ignorant to the enemy's schemes. The birds are coming down trying to pick at this, and the enemy's going to come at us too. While we're waiting on God, while, while we're going through this, we're going to have to fight those, those, those thoughts of doubt that God's forgotten about you. He, he, I know he promised this, but he's nowhere to be found. We need to chase that away, knowing that the enemy is going to come after that. Verse 12, now when the sun was going down, a deep, fleeps, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go, on, go to your father's in peace, and you will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. We see here, it says in verse 12, that Abram fell asleep, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. There will be times of darkness, even for those who are following the Lord. He, he allows those times in our lives to draw us closer to him. Those times when it's dark and we don't sense him, we, don't, we can't see him, we can't feel him around, doesn't mean he's moved. It just, he allows that time to awaken our senses more, if you would. The missionary and great man of God, J. Hudson Taylor, said this to a friend one time in this one of these dark, dark times. He said, I cannot read, I cannot think, I cannot even pray, but I can trust. You ever been there? It's not rebuke, it's not correction necessarily. God allows these times to come into our lives, even when we're walking with him, even when things are going very well, even when, when God is using us in great ways to draw us deeper to, to strengthen our faith. In our darkest times, we're, we're more in tune. We're more, more focused. How many, you, you know, when, when you're laying in bed and all the lights are off and you can't see anything, how you hear things better? That little noise that you didn't hear earlier when the lights were on and everything else was going on around you? When we're in those dark times, a lot of times it's preparation. It's times when God is, is speaking to us. And when we go to him and we go back to the promises that he's made to us in those times, they're so much more fine-tuned. 
they, they, they sink deep within us. And when, when we grab a hold of promises like Philippians 1.6, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. In those dark times, you hold on to that promise. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so we would walk in them. Lord, I'm not feeling like I'm being used. I'm, not feel, I'm feeling like it's a way. You get into that dark time and you realize I'm his workmanship. He created me for a reason, for a purpose. God spoke to Abram in this dark terror time. And he, he reassured Abram. He gave him these promises that his descendants, they're going to have a time in, in Egypt, but that Egyptians are going to be judged and they're going to come out with great possessions. He's going to live a long life. His descendants, the land that he sees around him, his descendants will possess this land. Now as we close real quickly, it refers to the Amorites here. That's a generic term for the people that were living in the land of Canaan at the time wicked idol worshipers. There's this false image of the Old Testament God as this angry, cold God that we had to wait around till Jesus came around to tell him to cool down a little bit. No, God is very long-suffering. The Father has a hugely compassionate heart, way more than we could ever understand. He gave these Godless people, the Canaanites, those that lived here, 400 years to repent. 400 years. And if Melchizedek was a man alive at the time, he left Melchizedek in there to be his witness. Abram, his witness. Following along here, plenty of opportunity to turn back. God is a gracious God. Long-suffering. Well, verse 17 it came about when the sun had set, and it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Kadamite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. Yeah. As I mentioned before, when a covenant was made between two parties, they would divide these halves and the blood would soak down into the middle and they'd walk through it together, both sides making an agreement in the middle. But here we see God passes through the divided halves. Abram's watching. Abram does not walk through it. God goes through it. He's represented by a smoking oven and a burning torch, and we don't have any more information on that other than God represents himself that way to the Israelite nation as he leads them through the desert in the pillar of, of cloud by day, smoke by day, and fire by night. But understand that this is a unilateral covenant. There is only one party making the promise. Abram never signed the deal. God signed it for both of them. Because of that, there's absolute certainty in the covenant because of who God is. Not because of who Abram is and not because of what Abram did. All because of God. And we have the new covenant in Jesus. He paid it all. It's not up to us to add to it or to finish the work. He finished it. 
And because of that, it's an absolute certainty. Just like God's covenant with Abram was absolutely certain because it wasn't based on anything that Abram did. The same is true with the new covenant with us. Jesus paid it all. All to M-I-O. I can't do anything to add to it. I just receive it in faith. And because of that, it cannot fail. Well, as a closing, in closing out his, uh, his commentary on these, this chapter that we just went through, Warren Wiersbe said this, when Abraham was concerned about himself, God assured him by saying, I am. When he was concerned about his error, he heard God say, I will. His concern about the land was met by God's I have given. In Jesus Christ, God gives those same assurances to his people today. Excuse me. Abraham believed God. Do you believe God? Hmm. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh, Lord, we do thank you again for this record of this incredible man of faith. Lord, we thank you that you are our I am and that you are everything that we need. Lord, our prayer is that we would look less to what you can provide for us and we just look more to you. Lord, we thank you that even in our moments of, of weaker faith, times when our faith is really struggling, Lord, you don't condemn us. You don't come down heavy on us. You just want us to come to you. Lord, I pray as each one of us just reflect on, on this and what we've talked about tonight, Lord, that you do draw us into that deeper relationship with you. That's our desire. That's why we're here, Lord. We want to hear from you. We thank you for your personal, intimate care for each of us. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, God bless you all. Have a wonderful rest of the week. And don't forget to grab a cup of hot chocolate on the way out. <laughs> Take care.